Hey, happy, happy Mother's Day. If you're a mom, if you are a uh, mom of a mom or a mom of a mom of a mom or, or if you're a mom expecting or if you're just like the mom of your friend group, you know, whoever you are, um, we want to say happy Mother's Day. And for you, we know that you have done tons of stuff. Uh, we are so thankful for the impact that you've had on your communities, your workplaces, your families. I mean, all those things. Moms just do such, such, such a, um, invaluable uh, work uh, in all of our lives. In fact, we're all here because we had a mom at some point. Um, and so to say thank you, not, not nearly enough to pay you back. In fact, nobody could ever pay you back for all the things that you've done and all the ways that you've sacrificed. But just say thank you. If you're a mom or in any way, shape, or form, we'll consider your mom or going to be, you're, you're gonna be a mom. Um, we've got a little cup with, just with some goodies, hopefully to make your day sweet because you are so sweet as people. Um, so uh, we, we just want to say thank you for that and, and feel free to grab one. In fact, we would just love for you to grab one of those on the way out. The other thing about today is we are starting a brand new series that we're going to go through the entire summer through the book of Nehemiah. Um, now, to go along with this whole series and this whole thought process of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, by the way, is in the Old Testament, is we have created um, what essentially is a reading guide for you to go through the book of Nehemiah. Um, on your way out, in fact, on your way in, maybe a couple of you picked this up, but on your way out, we would love for you to grab one of these. And let me tell you why, not just because we say, hey, pick one up, grab it, you know, and then throw it in your car. And three months from now, when you, you know, go through your car and you start to clean it out, and you think, oh, yeah, I had a reading guide. Um, the goal of this is... One, it, it helps you to unearth what it looks like. It helps you to interact with the scriptures for yourself. Um, as you go through, if, as you pick one of these up, you'll see it has a little note from us to you to say, hey, how are you? Um, then it goes through all kinds of background. It gives you timelines, gives you some context around it. It talks about themes and all that stuff. But the good stuff is that as you go through, it has Sunday for a place for you to take notes. As you know, you come and you hear, or maybe if you miss a Sunday, you're on vacation and you know, you're you know, listening, podcasting or whatever, and you can write down the things that you learned and you just think, oh my gosh, Ben, unbelievable sermon. And so you can write, you know, plenty of, plenty of space for that. Um, but the cool part about this is it takes you, it's a three-day, every week, it's a three-day journal. Um, it takes what we read on Sunday, it takes some of the verses that we talked about uh, that, that past Sunday, and it takes some extra t- uh, text, some extra uh, verses that you can kind of incorporate and it kind of sheds light on some of the things that are happening in Nehemiah. Because the goal for us this summer, in fact, the goal for us all the time is not simply for you to come to church and hear. It's not simply to come to church and listen. Our hope is that you learn, maybe through us or maybe from us or maybe not even a part of us, but at some point you decide that you are going to interact with the scriptures on your own. And so we're just trying to create a tool to help you to do that. In fact, if you're here and you're skeptical about church, you're here, you're skeptical about God, you're skeptical about the Bible, you hear everything I have to say and you say, you know what? I don't know if I can trust him even to do with a microphone. They always lead people astray. And you decide, I don't believe a word he says. I'm going to go read the Bible for myself. Let me just tell you, that is a win for us. We want you to go. We want you to read the Bible for yourself. So this is a tool that we've created to help you do that. It's going to an entire devotional. We'll have it going through the entire summer. Um, we'll be coming out with another one in the next couple weeks. This will take you for about the first four weeks. If you don't want to get one of these and it's just going to junk up your place, um, we have it available through our app. We have it available online. So all the places that we can possibly communicate and push you to read the Bible. We are trying to do that this summer. So all that said, commercial over, starting the book of Nehemiah. Now, let me tell you why Nehemiah is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible and especially in the Old Testament. Nehemiah though sometimes seemingly insignificant, there's not tons of people who think, man, I'm just going to have my quiet time in Nehemiah this morning. Nehemiah almost kind of exists within a vacuum. There's not a ton of other people that refer to Nehemiah. In fact, nobody in the New Testament refers back to the book of Nehemiah. 
But the reason I love Nehemiah so much is because Nehemiah, overall umbrella, is a story about a dude who did a really mundane thing. It's a guy who built a wall, okay? Wow, you know, such spiritual significance. Usually when you read the Bible, it's like this guy who did this prophecy and all these people got saved and everybody's like, I'm not worthy. Nehemiah basically dug a really big ditch. That's like the spiritual implications of what Nehemiah did. But the reality is, is Nehemiah built a wall and Nehemiah built a wall with no extraordinary miracles, There were no crazy, there were no unbelievable, there was no parting of the Red Sea, there was no, this guy got swallowed up at a whale at point A and got delivered back on dry land at point B, and everybody's thinking, can that really happen? There was no, I got some breadcrumb and some fish and put it all in the basket, and all of a sudden just thousands and thousands of bread and thousands and thousands of people are fed with bread and fish. This is a guy who had a very ordinary calling in life, who did not have any crazy miracle that happened, but did something extraordinarily significant in the kingdom and for the kingdom of God. And let me tell you why that's so important to me. Because most of our lives exist in the ordinary. Most of our lives exist without these outrageous, crazy, inexplicable miracles that happen. But the belief is, is that for all of us, God has called us to do something. God has not simply called us to exist here on planet earth, especially as Christians, just to live in mundane, just to live in ordinary, and just to live in mediocrity. And so what I hope to discover this summer is what in the world has God called you to do here on planet earth? In fact, beyond that, what in the world and how in the world and why in the world has God called you to do? what he's called you to do. Because here's what I know of all of us. If God's called you to do something, you want to know about it. And even more, if God's called you to do something, you want to know what and you want to know how to do it. And the principles that we discover through the book of Nehemiah, we're going to discover are transferable and transcend any stage of life in any place that you are. Now, all that to say, let me kind of end my preface of the whole series with this. What we believe is that in every season of life, God, called, God has called you to something. Every season of life, God has called me to something. If nothing else, when Jesus stood right before he ascended into heaven, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That if nothing else, God has called us as Christians, as the body of Christ, to go and to do and to make disciples. And so what I want to, again, help us to uncover is in this season of life, or maybe for the next several seasons of your life, what has God called you to do? with your life, with your one life, to make it count in an extraordinary way for the kingdom of God. Now, to get there this morning, essentially what we're going to do is I'm going to give you lots of background and lots of context, connect a bunch of different dots and go through history to get us to the book of Nehemiah. And then I want to go through the first couple verses of Nehemiah to discover perhaps some questions that will begin to unearth what in the world God has called you to do again here while we're on planet earth in this one life we have to live. Now, start this whole thing off. Um, we go way back to, the, to this fellow named Abraham. Now, we've talked about Abraham the last couple of weeks in a row. In fact, we talked about Abraham about two weeks ago, and we talked about Joseph, you know, this past week. And many of you know Abraham, and we've said this song over and over and over and over again. But we're just going to do it one more time, all right? Because you know Abraham, because Father Abraham had many, and many sons had father, and I am, and so are 
Very good. All right. So let me just tell you, if you've only been here the last three weeks of church, you're like, I don't know that song, but I hate that song because you've said it every single week. So there was this guy named Abraham. And Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, God gave promises to Abraham and promises to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to give you all this land. And God made these promises to Abraham, which would eventually go to his son Isaac, which would eventually go to his son Joseph. And Joseph would lead, or not necessarily lead, he would get thrown into uh, slavery, he would get thrown into jail, and after that he would be put in an incredibly prominent place in the nation of at that point where the Egyptians. And in Egypt, Joseph would have incredible power and incredible authority, and his entire family would then move to Egypt. And as his family lived there, his family started to multiply and spread and multiply and spread. And as the generations went along, people forgot about Joseph. They forgot about his power. In this family became enslaved in Egypt. And the interesting thing is there was, a, there was a relationship that happened that the more that they were enslaved, the more that they were oppressed through slavery, the more that they multiplied, oppressed, multiplied, oppressed, multiplied. And this family grew and grew and grew and grew and grew to the point where the Egyptians one day said, okay, here's what our plan is to stop this family from growing so stinking much because they're getting so big that if we don't do something about it, they're going to revolt and overthrow us. So we're going to kill the firstborn. And in that process, God heard the prayers of this family of Israel. And the prayers went up to God, and God sent this guy named Moses, who you've heard about. Moses, who did all kinds of stuff, who tried the wrong way by killing an Egyptian at one point, fled to the desert, spent tons of years in the desert, and eventually came back and led the nation of Israel out of slavery and out of bondage from Egypt. This family... That's becoming a nation that takes the name of Israel. As they go through the desert, after about 40 years, they're wandering and they're wandering and they're wandering and they're wandering and they're wandering. They'd stay a place for a while and then they'd, you know, wander for a while and they'd stay a place for a while and they'd wander for a place for a while. But a whole time, it was in preparation for God to give them this place, this promised land, this land flowing of milk and honey, which us sounds like Publix, but to them was unbelievable. And so he'd say, I want you to go, and I'm going to give you this land. Eventually Moses would die, Joshua would take over, and they'd go into the promised land, and they would just fully leverage what God had told them to do. And in their system, the idea was this family, as they grew, started out with 12 different sons, became 12 different tribes, and these 12 different tribes kind of grew into bigger, bigger people groups. So it was basically a nation that was developed of 12 different subsects of people that were all started with sons and families. Now, as this family grew, The order of things was that God would be their God and they would be the people. They didn't want to, they didn't have a king, they didn't have a ruler, they didn't have anybody over them. It was a God and then everybody else. And as it was God and everybody else, what happened is the nation, the people, sometimes a couple families and sometimes the entire family groups of Israel would decide to rebel against God. And they would rebel against God and God would deliver them. They would rebel against God and God would deliver them. And through this rebellion and deliverance, what basically what would happen is God would raise up these people called judges. Judges were military and political leaders that would deliver, sometimes economic leaders, that would develop and that would basically reinstate and deliver this nation of Israel, these families that were becoming this nation called Israel. That is, by the way, in your Bible, if you read the Bible, that's the book of Judges. That says the nation rebels. God restores. The nation rebels. God restores. Well, eventually, this nation looked around and said, you know what? Every other nation has a king, and we don't have a king. 
Every other nation has a king, and we don't have a king. And we want a king like everybody else. And God kept saying, you don't want a king, you don't want a king. And they said, we want a king, we want a king. And God said, I'm telling you, if I give you a king, it's not going to go well for you. Eventually, they said, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. God said, okay, here's your king. And gave him a guy named Saul. Saul was king for a while. David became king. After David was king, and you've probably heard of David, if nothing else, David and Goliath. David becomes king, the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. That they're a nation at this point. Then Solomon becomes king. Solomon, who had incredible wisdom. Solomon, by the way, who wrote the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, who, by the way, is the worst book in the history of the Bible to teach through. Just so you know. Because Solomon is the worst case of ADHD you will ever find in the scriptures. Solomon, he's like two verses here, and then a bird happened. You know, it's just like, he's, he's all over the place. And so as you read through the book of Proverbs, let me tell you, if you're, you know, you just like a thousand different things in one chapter, it's great. If you like one singular point to come out through an entire text, don't read the book of Proverbs, okay? So... So, book of Proverbs, you know, Solomon writes incredible wisdom, but at the end of Solomon's reign, what happens is the kingdom is basically split into, and there's a transition of power that happens as Solomon hands it off to the next generation, where the northern kingdom, the top ten of the tribes, the top ten of the family, and the bottom two are split. As they're split, the northern kingdom is notorious for having bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, as God said in the period of the judges. And as they had bad king, bad king, they rebelled against God, they rebelled against God, and they rebelled against God, and they rebelled against God. And in their rebellion, God was abundantly clear. There will be consequences for your rebellion. There will be consequences for your rebellion. And not because he was a mad God or a vindictive God, but because he's a just God. And like any parent... If your kid continues to misbehave and continues to misbehave and continues to misbehave, eventually... You are going to have to discipline your kid and put him in time out. In fact, we know the parent who doesn't discipline their kid. And you see him in the mall, and you're like, I want to spank your child for you, in fact. You know, I mean, holy cow, they're just running around, whoever. So God, God, and this is, this, this is by the way, when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, this is why when you're reading, it's just like doom and gloom, doom and gloom, judgment, judgment, judgment. You're thinking, what kind of a God is this? Here's why. God wanted to be abundantly clear, if I discipline you, I want to give you every opportunity to not be disciplined and to be restored. And this thing happened. The Assyrians came in. In fact, many of you have read about this in your history book. In fact, if you got your, your, your read-through guide, you can see this in the timeline. All this stuff is captured in the timeline. In about 722... The Assyrians, again, you might have heard about this in your history class, came in and became the world power. And as they're the world power, they go into the northern kingdom as the judgment of God, as the discipline of God, as the wrath of God, and takes the entire place and basically burns it to the ground, kills almost everyone, and exports a few other people. But for the most part, the entire northern kingdom is just destroyed. But there's a southern kingdom who had a few good kings kind of sparsely put in there. They would restore the law. They would restore the order. But again, the nation would rebel. The nation would rebel. And God kept saying, if you rebel, if you continue to disobey, there will be consequences to your disobedience. On the world stage, there's this group called the Babylonians, who again, you've probably heard of, who came and took over the Assyrians. They became the new world power. And the Babylonians, again, you can read this in about 587, 586, came down and destroyed the southern kingdom. 
The southern kingdom, which was called Judah, which their central city was Jerusalem. And in their central city, there was this temple that Solomon had built. And they destroyed the temple, which was the place of worship. Now, this is like the equivalent of if you were a Jewish boy or you were a Jewish girl, the place that you worshiped was Jerusalem, was the temple. And this was the Mecca of your religion. So this is basically them saying, you now have no land and you now have no God. And they exported all over the Babylonian Empire. Because what they knew is every place we conquer has assets. Every place we conquer has people who are smart, has great leaders. And so the Babylonians were actually incredible. This is a whole leadership principle in of itself. But they would conquer, and as they would conquer, they would find the best and the brightest and the smartest, and they would take them and put them in prominent positions. And essentially, God said, you've rebelled. Not because I hate you, and not because I'm mad at you, but because ultimately I want to restore you. I am going to put you in time out. And the Babylonian exile began the exilic period where for 70 years the nation of Israel had no place, had no country, had no temple. Well, again, on the world market, there's something that happened. There's this group called the Persians. The Persians came in and defeated the Babylonians. A king called King Cyrus came in and defeated the Babylonians. And as Cyrus defeated the Babylonians, they knew that all of the people who used to be in Jerusalem, in fact, all the people who the, per, who the Babylonians had conquered, basically got exported. And so King Cyrus does what many will say was one of the first great issues of social justice. He said, I want everybody, 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 everybody who's been exported in the Babylonian exile, everyone who is in an exilic period of their life right now, you are allowed to go back to your home country. You are allowed to go build your temple. And all of a sudden, by thousands and thousands, people returned to their homeland. In fact, we got a little account of this in the book of Ezra. Right before Nehemiah, if you've got your Bible, you can open up to it. We're not going to spend too much time there. If you've got one of these cool, trendy black Bibles, there's page 389. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom... And also put in writing, thus says the Cyrus, the king of Persia, verse 2. The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. In other words, everybody can go back. And in fact, God has put it on me that I think there ought to be a rebuilt house. There ought to be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with you, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, essentially what Cyrus says is, hey, if you've been exiled, you can go back if you got, you know, for whatever reason, kicked out, if they exported you, if they took, which they took most everybody, then you can now go back. And in fact, I want you to build your temple back. Now, what's interesting is Cyrus's decree, this decree that Cyrus gave, had been heard about for, for centuries after this. Historians would say, you know, everybody's heard of Cyrus's decree. Everybody's heard of Cyrus's decree. Everybody heard of Cyrus's decree. What's fascinating is in 1879, in what is now modern-day Iraq, they discovered something. In fact, they discovered this. We got a picture of it. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. Now, when you look at it, it just kind of looks like, you know, a 
do-it-yourself craft project that somebody did for Mother's Day at one point. You know, it's just kind of like a little bowl, and Mom, here you go. Now, what this actually is, and we have no clue how to read this for us, but basically what it is, is this is in a language called cuneiform, and this was found in Iraq in 1879. It's actually, I'm pretty sure, in Britain. Um, You can go and you can see this today in a museum. But this is the decree, or one of the decrees of Cyrus, where Cyrus decreed, and they wrote it down. This is believed, kind of the the scholarly opinion, or the, you know, not necessarily a Christian opinion, but the, the historian's opinion, the architectural, not architectural, but anyways, all the opinion of the smart people basically say, this was, we This was made in in 538 BC when Cyrus said, go home. And the essence of what this thing says in cuneiform is basically, hey, this is how we conquered. This is who's in charge and everybody can go home. And that was the central message behind this Cyrus cylinder that was found a few years back or, you know, a couple hundred years back. Now, back to Bible days. So when this happened, tens of thousands of people go back to Jerusalem. And as they go back to Jerusalem... They start to rebuild the temple, like they had said. They caught a couple snags along the way, but they rebuilt, rebuilt, rebuilt the temple. And as they're rebuilding the temple, eventually they complete the temple. And eventually what happens is they've been in Babylonian exile for a long time at this point. And so they don't know the law. They don't know what they ought to do. They don't know what they ought not do. So everybody kind of starts acting however they want to act. And God sends Ezra, who's a, who's a priest, down and says, Ezra, I want you to basically go in and I want you to help this group out. And I want you to reinstate the law. I want you to be their priest and they're going to be your people. So Ezra goes back and he reinstates the law. Now on the heels of Ezra, a few years after Ezra goes back, about 90 years after Cyrus makes this decree, around the year of 444 BC, there's a guy named Nehemiah who gets a call from God to do something significant in the city. So all that to say, turning your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 1, okay? Nehemiah chapter 1. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali. Now it happened in the month of Sislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, again, we don't really read that and interpret that and know exactly what that means, but eventually, essentially that is the year 444 B.C., and Susa is the capital of the Persian Empire. So Nehemiah is painting a picture that we don't understand culture, but they all understood when they read this, that Nehemiah is in the palace of the king. Nehemiah is in the place, in the city, in the palace. And what we're going to find out right at the end of chapter 1, which we're going to get to next week, is Nehemiah was the cupbearer, in fact, to the king, which meant that in their day, there was a cupbearer, and the cupbearer would taste the wine for the king because if anybody wanted to kill the king, one of the most popular ways to kill a king was to poison him. One of the most popular ways to poison the king was through his wine. So they had cupbearers that would drink the king's wine before the king drunk wine in case anybody wanted to kill the king, that person would die first. So Nehemiah had an incredible relationship, very close, constant contact with the king. And as Nehemiah is in this palace, 90 years after Cyrus said, you go home, still in a foreign land, in fact, in an incredibly powerful position. It accounts the details of interaction. He said that Hanani, verse 2, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. So basically, hey, tell me what's going on in the city. Tell me two things. Tell me about the city. Tell me about the people. How's the city doing? How are the people doing? How's the city doing? How's the people doing? Tell me just kind of what's the state of everything. And they said to me, the remnant, they're in the province. In other words, the people that are there in the province, 
who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, for us, if someone were to say, man, the walls around my house are destroyed, we'd say, well, who has walls? You know, man, the, the, the tree fell on the fence in my backyard. No one would be like, oh my gosh, let's rebuild your fence. We'd say, call the insurance agent. But for them, walls had extraordinary significance. And here was the significance. The wall was the way, essentially, that was the first line of defense in case anybody wanted to do anything in your country. If you didn't have walls, anybody could come in. Anybody could take over. Anybody could steal. Anybody could rummage. Anybody could pillage. You were incredibly susceptible if you didn't have walls. In fact, here was the problem. A city without walls, a city without walls didn't make sense. No one would build a city No one would build a city of any worth, especially, without walls. Because anybody at any time could come and invade. This would be like the equivalent of you saying, okay, I'm going to buy a 7 Series BMW. I'm going to drive it to the worst neighborhood in town. I'm going to leave all my windows down. I'm going to put 500 bucks in cash on the seat and an iPod and an iMini and like anything else that I can think of that I'm trendy and young and hip and cool. And I'm going to leave it all. I'm going to leave the windows down. And by the way, here's the keys on the seat. Like that, if you're, if you're praying about things, that is probably not God's will for your life, okay? That's dumb. And in the same way, you wouldn't build an incredible city without an incredible wall. And so Nehemiah sees this. Nehemiah hears this. Nehemiah hears what's happened in the city. And in fact, that the people of God are in incredible disarray and, and shameful because the wall has no cities. And the city represents the city of God. And Nehemiah's response to this news is so telling to how and to what God calls us to do here on planet Earth. So here's how he responds. Verse 4. And soon, or as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, here's why that's significant. God called Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of the city through a broken heart. God called Nehemiah to do something that would be significant for the kingdom of God. But it didn't start with this unbelievable prophetic vision. God didn't come to Nehemiah in a dream. God didn't give Nehemiah this vision of what could and should be. God didn't do any of those type of things specifically in terms of an extraordinary, revelatory moment. What Nehemiah heard broke his heart. And it was from that broken and burdened heart that Nehemiah felt the call of God on his life. Now let me just tell you, that is where most of us enter the story. Because for most of us, the truth is, when you're going through life, there's not this angel that appears next to you and say, this is what I want you to do. This is where I want you to go. This is who I want you to have impact on. He breaks your heart for what you see. He breaks your heart for the people that you're with. He breaks your heart for what he's called you to do. With your life. So let me ask a question. So what breaks your heart 
What breaks your heart? What burdens you when you see it? What is it that when you see it and you hear about it and though everybody else, because here's the interesting thing, this is 90 years after Cyrus said go back. In fact, this is about 15 years after Ezra's gone back, which was about 65 years or 75 years after Cyrus and Zerubbabel went back to rebuild the temple, that Ezra goes back to rebuild the wall. And over a decade later, Nehemiah hears, which means Nehemiah is not the first person to hear this. Nehemiah is not the first person to say, what? There are no walls. People existed for centuries, for decades, I mean, at this point in life and in time and through the perspective of history they existed for decades and never did anything about the wall but nehemiah was burdened when he heard these this news and in the same way there might be things that you see and that you experience on a daily basis and everybody else experiences them but the one thing that drives you is god has burdened you and broken your heart for it oftentimes Out of a burdened and broken heart is the calling of God and what he has you to do in life and in this season of life. So how does God break your heart? What's your heart broken for? In fact, here's here's an interesting way you can look at this. What ticks you off? Not like, you know, my parents. What, what when you see, what when you see somebody not doing anything about, what does it see that when you see someone who doesn't do it well, what is it that one thing that when you see, I mean, it just drives you nuts. You see nobody engaging in that. You see nobody helping that. You see people trying but not doing a good job. What is it? Oftentimes, honestly, and this is the weird thing, the thing that God has burdened you for, he's given you such a passion for that when you see nothing doing, happening for it or when you see someone doing a bad job of it, it drives you crazy because you have such a passion and such a burden for that one particular thing in that one particular area. Now, in this, let me, let me just tell you kind of how this interface will just give you a quick example from my life and we're kind of coming close to the end. For me, you know how our church started? It was from a burden. It was from a broken heart. It was from a passion. But I saw our church, the church that I worked at and I loved and did all kinds of stuff for. And our church was doing what lots of churches did, which was to exist in our pocket of community and try to go serve in a community of need. We existed in a pocket of community and tried to go serve in other communities of need. The genesis behind DCC was what would it be like if we existed geographically, if we existed in a location that was within the context of communities of need? What if we didn't have to drive somewhere to love our neighbor? What if we didn't have to drive somewhere to love our marginalized neighbor? What if we existed? What if there was a church? What if there was a body of believers who were mobilized to go into the community around them and how that interface was not to drive, to get in the vans, to get in the buses and go, but to literally walk out the door and cross the street? What would it be like if a church who understood the depth and the gravity and the selflessness of the gospel existed in a community and a context context where marginalized people already were and marginalized populations already were of real physical need of real emotional need of real spiritual need and there are those in every places but in dire needs and years before this church started i had a burden i had a burden especially for students on the south side especially for kids on the south side 
I remember distinctively being a youth pastor, feeling I was like I was exactly in the middle of God's will in my life, and knowing that there was nothing happening for students, or there was very little happening for students on the south side, that every church on the north side of town had a youth pastor, every church over 25 people had a youth group, everybody had FCAs at their schools, everybody had young lives at their schools, but on the south side, there was very little to none of that. In fact, there was one church that I knew of that was doing it at the time. And I grew up with youth groups. I grew up with FCAs. I grew up with the gospel all around me. And that there was stuff happening. Not nearly to the extent. And I lived with the burden for a couple years of saying, God, I am exactly in the middle of your will. And at the same time, I have this burden. And God used that to develop this church. So what does God burden your heart with? The thing I love about Nehemiah is Nehemiah's burden wasn't for anything spiritual. Nehemiah's burden was to build a wall. There is no direct spiritual significance to building a wall. This is like if you came to me and you said, Ben, I've just been praying. And God has burdened my heart to dig a ditch. <laughs> I'd look at that and say, grab a shovel, I guess, you know? I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing directly spiritual about that. He just built a wall. But the impact of this wall was extraordinary. This is the wall that would fortify the city, that would become again the city of Jerusalem, the central place of worship on planet Earth. This was the city that through the next couple hundred years would be the place where people were trying to figure out what was happening as God wouldn't speak. And this is the place where one day there would be a guy named Jesus who would march into the city, who would be tried in front of Pontius Pilate, and just outside of these walls that were built by Nehemiah, who had no clue of the significance, there's a guy named Jesus who would die for the sins of the earth just outside of the wall. And the reason that city was a city and the walls were walls is because one day God broke Nehemiah's hearts for it. And just outside of those city walls, our Savior Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world and Nehemiah had no clue what God was going to do hundreds of years from that point but one day God would bring fulfillment to this city to these walls when he would send his one and only son that whosoever believe in him would have eternal life and Nehemiah had no clue and in the same way you have no clue the spiritual significance of what God has called you to do through the way he breaks your heart you just have a heart God breaks your heart for your family man be the best parent that you can possibly be and you have no clue what God's going to do we believe this with all our heart the greatest contribution you make here on planet earth might not be what you do it might be who you raise Beyond that, you have a part for kids. You have a heart. You're a teacher. And every kid that walks into your classroom, let me just tell you, you see kids, you see kids who maybe because of their outside, maybe because of their circumstances, maybe because of their situations, it's almost like their life is predetermined. There almost is no hope, but God has specifically put you with a burden in those kids' lives, in those kids' classrooms to make a difference in those kids' lives, and you exist for a purpose. And it might not seem spiritual. You might not be giving a sermon. You might not be saying all the verses, but you are praying daily for those kids. You are interceding in those kids' lives, and you are giving those kids hope and future. You might be a banker. 
And you might see every day people who put themselves in terrible financial positions. And God breaks your heart for seeing people who make terrible financial decisions. And you just as a banker go and you make the best decisions that you can. You help as many people as you can be put in a position that they're going to have a financially free, successful future. I mean, whatever it is, however spiritual it is, however not spiritual it is, whether it's going to the mission field or going to work or going to class, the point is God has called you to do something here on planet Earth. And we have no clue how he wants to use and what he ultimately has purposed for the broken heart. But God always and oftentimes works and calls through the heart, through a broken heart, through a burdened heart, through a passionate heart. So as we go through the summer, honestly, I just want you to pay attention. I just want you to think introspectively. I want you to pray introspectively and say, God, what have you broken my heart for in this season of life? What have you broken my heart for in this season of life? Perhaps it's something that you already see and that you already know. And simply asking the question, you already know five things that God has broken your heart for. Perhaps for you, you're like Nehemiah, who's just a cupbearer to the king, serving the king's wine every single day. And one day you get the news that you just can't shake and God burdens your heart for. But let me just cast this vision into your life for one second and we'll be done. God has not called the church, the people of God, to do nothing and exist in mediocrity. To exist in complacency. To exist simply to exist. God has called the people of God to be the light of the world, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, that they would see your good deeds, they would see the work that you've called, that God has called you to, as incredibly spiritual or as incredibly seemingly unspiritual, but it has incredible spiritual significance, as it might seem, that they would see your good deeds and they would turn and praise your Father who is in heaven. That ultimately, for Nehemiah, this was God's work. But this was Nehemiah's witness to the glory of God on planet Earth. And this might be your work, but this is your witness to the glory of God on planet Earth. And it starts, it starts, it starts, it almost always starts with a broken heart. So, what's your heart broken for? What are you burdened with? What wakes you up in the morning you just can't stop thinking about? What do you go to bed at night dreaming about and thinking about and thinking about what could and should be if only? What's the thing that you see when you see nobody else doing it, you see nobody else interacting with you, you see someone with it doing a bad job of it? That just frustrates you. And that passion just fired. What's that big, hairy, audacious goal? What's that big, massive problem that you see? What's that small little problem that you see that just drives you nuts in a holy, passionate way? And in that, my guess is that you will find the beginnings of perhaps what God's calling you to here on planet Earth. So let's pray together.